Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we'll hear from Ramona Prasad and Denise Chisholm. Ramona is a portfolio manager who manages several dividend strategies available to Canadian investors, including Fidelity U.S. Dividend Fund, and she focuses on downside protection while still delivering strong risk-adjusted returns. Denise is Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, who is responsible for the research of Fidelity's portfolio construction strategies. Throughout her over 20-year career in financial services, she's mastered the use of data in uncovering investable insights as an analyst, portfolio manager, sector strategist, and now as Director of Quantitative Market Strategy. Denise shares how her insights are used by the portfolio management team. Ramona and Denise join moderator Kelly Creelman, SVP Products and Marketing, to share how they think the markets are shaping up for 2023 and the key factors they're keeping an eye on going forward. We'll also hear Ramona and Denise's thoughts on various sectors, including energy, and their comments on various geographical areas, including the U.S. and emerging markets. This podcast was recorded on January 31st, 2023. For more podcasts from Fidelity Canada's Vision 2023 event, please subscribe, as more will be released in the coming days, in addition to the handful released already. Or, for full video replays of the event, advisors should reach out to their Fidelity rep, and investors should head to fidelity.ca slash the upside and sign up for the Upside newsletter. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Good morning, ladies, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Great, thank you for joining us. I'm excited about this uh, session and um, in particular, you do very different things. Yes. So Denise, you're a sector strategist. Mm -hmm. You think of the world in a top-down manner. Ramona, you're very much bottom-up. But at the same time, you spend a lot of time sharing ideas. I'm interested, though, in hearing about, has there ever been a time when you've disagreed? So why don't we start with Denise? Yeah, I'd say sort of right now. is Maybe disagreement's the wrong word, but I'm certainly more constructive. And Ramona, as I would describe it, is more cautious, but I'll let her talk for herself. I mean, I see... A complicated environment currently, it sounds pretty bleak out there, but we know that equities are a discounting mechanism, so we have to be open-minded that equities can go up on bad news. And a lot of the news that investors are concerned about, like the coming recession, maybe the earnings contraction, when I look through the historical data, you see a very clear pattern of the more that stocks have gone down in the past increases your odds of going up in the future even in the face of a payroll decline. So the data is pretty clear in the sense that the more visible a recession is, the more likely it is to have already been discounted. So my constructive backdrop on the, on the market isn't necessarily because I think the news is going to get any better. It's that I think that there's higher probabilities that bad news has already been discounted, which is coming at it in a different perspective from Ramona. And I would say that this is less about right or wrong of a market backdrop. I mean, we could turn this into a bull bear debate, but I, I think it would be misguided because at the end of the day, my job is research. So I want to give her 
the best data that I can give her so that she can make money by stock picking in her process. So if I'm, my job is not to tell her what everybody else tells her. My job is to tell her where I think that the data suggests that maybe she should look or maybe she should uh, dust off some valuation metrics. So a great example here is I think consumer staples that I think right now certainly has, has had a track record of outperforming in recessionary environments, but I think that there's more risk because of the relative valuation starting point, which is not to say that there are 0% of consumer staple stocks that will work here, but it is to say that, Ramona, please have a higher bar to use your process to stock pick within where I see opportunities. Hey, Ramona, when we talked last week, one of the things you said was you don't need people to tell you what you already own. And I think that's really, it, it really resonated well. And um, talk to me a little bit about, you gave the example of energy. There was a time in history when the two of you thought very differently about that. Right. So on the topic of disagreeing, we yeah. disagree a lot. A lot. We actually yeah, have yeah. a lot of fun disagreeing. Yes. Actually, I enjoy that more than when we agree. It's just not as fun. So you're one of the, we're one of the more fun people to disagree with because it's, it's passionate. Yes. Um, and, and, and generally, people struggle with disagreement, um, especially now in, in kind of the current climate. So mm -hmm. there was a time to the point on energy where I think I wanted to own it. This was, I don't know, this was definitely pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. And, um, and I structurally tend to not own it. And you helped me to see it differently. Yes. So you were explaining, you, you just helped to open up my lens on valuation. Right. So we looked at it on different valuation metrics and all your statistical odds stuff. And I yes. stayed away from it and that was the right call. And then I actually think you helped me to get, get in. When, so what I like, so I'll just maybe abstract it away. What I like about working with you is um, if I tend to be conservative and I'm sort of a downside protection-oriented um, investor, Denise keeps me honest. <laughs> so Denise helps me to um, essentially interrogate my biases because um, I don't know if I'm speaking for you correctly where you might maybe tend to be more optimistic, certainly more optimistic than I am. So I think if you, I, th I think if to abstract it away, if you can understand your um, intrinsic mindset, and then understand what biases come with that mindset, and those biases will not always work for you because that's the nature of the market, then you need to include in your process a way to interrogate those biases. And so yes. you're instrumental in my process to interrogating my biases. You help me to just see what could go right because I'm oriented towards seeing what can go wrong. Right, right. right. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. So Denise, um, money supply has contracted at a rate we haven't seen historically. Can you talk about the implications of the lack of liquidity is had on the market. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of narratives in the market that make less sense once you look at the data, right? Payrolls is one of them. If you had perfect foresight as an investor, what do you think your odds are of the market going up if payrolls were going to contract? You were right that they contract, right? It's actually 50-50 odds, 0% returns, which are below average. But what you can see, again, like I said, is that the more the stock market has gone down in the past, the more likely it is to go up in the face of contracting payrolls. Earnings look like that. So does money supply. So I think that there's a narrative in the market that says, well, if money supply is negative, and this is a very rare phenomenon, we can see that that would be declining liquidity, and that's got to be bad for asset prices. But what you find when you look through history, and we do have M2 going back to the you know, 1960s, what you can find is that it's monotonically, which is a stair-step pattern, so that there's a clear correlation related to equities such that 
when money supply is negative, you have the highest odds of an equity market advance. And when money supply is positive, you actually have the lowest odds for market advance, which is a way to say that the market is mathematically a discounting mechanism. And you have to know as an investor that you want to be at least oriented towards buying bad news and potentially selling good news. Look, this isn't a lock. It's 85% odds, not 100% odds. But I think it puts you on watch that whenever you see these negative indicators, you have to look at the historical data and say, you know, with the you know, basis of history, it is most likely to have been already discounted. So I think you need to be open-minded to a lot of the economic indicators and challenge the current narratives in the market. So Ramona, we've been talking a lot today about inflation, interest rates, obviously a lot of concerns around it, a lot of volatility in the market. Why do dividend funds remain very attractive right now? Right. So I guess three things in this that, that probably matter most in this environment. The first is just naturally, if you've got companies that can pay a sustainable, predictable, sort of stable dividend, typically that's a company that has a return profile that's fairly high and stable. And that one of the core elements of that is from having what we call pricing power. So the ability to price your end product higher than the cost, so you can get real pricing. So in an environment that's inflationary, if you have a business that produces real pricing, that means if you're running the business well, you should be able to then generate real, um, a level of uh, real growth in your earnings stream, which is what supports the dividends. So that's, that gets a massive sort of premium in an inflationary environment. So dividends tend to be, dividend paying companies tend to be correlated with that kind of business profile. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second, the second piece is around in inflationary environments or environments where there's a lot of uncertainty, you've got more potential for drawdowns um, and more volatility. So when you've got drawdowns and or volatility, having a good proportion of dividends in your return stream um, both increases the dividend proportion of total return in a drawdown, which is great because dividends are always positive. Um, and also what I really like about having a good proportion of dividends in your total return is it dampens the volatility profile of that return stream so anything for me in my process that dampens volatility is great for your essentially long-term compounded return. So those three things in an inflationary slash high uncertainty environment are extremely helpful. Great. So continuing on inflation, Denise, would be interested in your thoughts about it. And are we going to continue to see you know, sticky inflation for a long time? I'll take the under and I'll give you three reasons. And they're like increasingly... Controversial, I think. <laughs> we disagree. Uh, <laughs> we definitely disagree. So, look, I think one of the narratives is that wages are sticky because there's, you know, excess demand of workers, so we don't have enough workers, so wages are going to stay sticky, and that means core services inflation is going to stay stickier. When I look through history, the unemployment rate doesn't really correlate with wage growth, which tells me we don't have a great measure of excess supply and demand of labor. What correlates more with wage growth is corporate profits, which were growing and now slowing uh, precipitously. So I do think that wage growth will slow. But even aside from that, if I had to pick one factor to pop into a core you know, PCE deflator or core CPI model, uh, core or overall, and you know, it's interesting that I say core, core model, um, if I had to pick between wages or crude oil, it would be crude oil. 
that has been more likely to be the leading edge of deflationary pressures. So the fact that we've seen a 20% contraction in gasoline and crude oil is a very significant deflationary impulse that I think that's one of the reasons why I'll take the lower on. The second is, I think when you look at inflation from a diffusion index, one of the big pieces of stickiness of inflation is that shelter component. And that shelter component is deeply lagged relative to real-time pricing on the housing market, which I'm sure everybody in this room probably knows that we're seeing some pressure in the housing markets globally. Uh, And the Federal Reserve knows that this is a deeply lagged indicator and has even acknowledged it in Chairman Powell's testimony. So if you say, okay, let's just take out that big shelter component, which is, I think, 40% of the CPI and 20% of the core PCE or the PCE deflator, I should say, and let's look at the average annualized run rate of everything else X that, it's slightly negative over the last three and six months. So to me, this is not something we ever saw in the 70s or 80s, right? This is something that we didn't see until 1983. So to me, this says that there's not nearly as much of an inflation problem as many investors potentially expect. And then I'll, I'll, you know, my third point is, and I think it's an important one and it's a little bit tricky, the sweet spot for the equity market is not 2% inflation historically. It's between three and a half and five. Now, yes, we can debate whether or not that the Fed needs it to get to two. Look, two only cropped up in, let's call it, 2016. Um, and there are certainly more knowledgeable people about the Federal Reserve and their policies than me, but they've changed the goalposts a fair amount of time. In fact, like a year ago, I think that they were talking about inflation being transitory. So I'm not necessarily sure that I want to bet on a group of people that have changed their minds rapidly. And I'd rather bet on data, which says that to the extent that inflation is decelerating, let's call it between three and a half, three and a half and five, that actually has been historically a sweet spot for the equity market and not a problem. What about decoupling? Can the US be in a recession and the rest of the world be okay? It's rare to do. Um, It's definitely rare to do, especially from a severe recession perspective. I I do think that this is gonna be a very difficult time to call it a quasi-recession. We had two quarters of negative GDP. We are likely gonna have an earnings contraction. I'm not necessarily sure that we're going to get a significant payroll decline, but you can certainly see the unemployment rate going up as the labor force sort of withdraws supply. So there's all kinds of possibilities that we look back in five years and go, oh, that makes sense. Uh, But at the same time, I do think that we have finally hit some bounds of valuation support outside the U.S., which we really haven't hit and I want to say like a decade, at least in my work. It's true, EM and IFA have always been cheaper than the United States, uh, but not at a relative level that has given you strong predictive odds. There's still the potential for a value trap, but emerging markets specifically has had a real floor in this relative valuation that has made it a positive risk reward, even though that the fundamentals might not be potentially better in the, than the U.S. over the course of the next year. So I think that as much as we debate value or growth, and I think I'm a little bit more agnostic on those two factors right now, given the outperformance in value, but I think what's clear over the coming years that you will see valuation floors still be a continued theme. I think it's still going to be important in the market. And that's where something like emerging markets is finally screening well on my work. But I have to say that I think that if I had to choose between EM and U.S. mid-caps, I'd pick U.S. mid-caps 
for the stronger valuation support and at least the potential for more fundamental upside. But this is the first time you're saying the first time you've looked at EM in over a decade. Yes. I look at it a lot. I yeah. just don't. Yeah, I just didn't find it constructive. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, and Ramona, you have a global mandate, which is great. Right. You can look around the world. So what are your thoughts? Where are you leaning towards Like, if you think about U.S. versus international? So um agree with you that there's this valuation disparity that, that I've looked at differently. Like it's been this really interesting relative valuation where international, where U.S. is the domestic. So international ex-U.S. has been cheaper for a yes. long time. And if you graph yes. it, you know, U.S. to ex-U.S. has been like really derated. Yes. But the fundamental support hasn't been there to go own ex-U.S. So given that I am more conservatively oriented today, I'm not as bullish as you are. I just yeah. think there's a lot of optimism in the market. And I actually think that um, this reversal in, in a, you know, four-decade, if you will, interest rate picture, sort of this sudden reversal on the back of inflation is, is fast and hard. And we just haven't seen enough stuff break. But that's that's how a conservatively minded investor might think. So if that's my sort of base case, we also never got to valuation spreads that would imply yes. discounted a break. That's so right. So I'll give you that. Um, sure. We just yeah, the level yeah. of fear just never got fearful enough for, right. for me to get excited. So with that backdrop, um, and I don't believe I'm not a big believer in de- decoupling. It's then it's reasonable to conclude that I would not today be leaning incrementally XUS, even though when you look at valuation, there's more dispersion in those markets. There's, there's just more raw valuation opportunity. I'm not really there. In general, there's, there's um, sporadic opportunities here and there. So the UK has a lot of cheap stocks right now, mm-hmm. like cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and, and certainly continental Europe. And there's a lot of geop- geopolitical risk in parts of ASEAN and, and, you know, like Taiwan, Taiwanese um, semiconductor companies are a good example. So there's spots, but overall, it's not aggregating to like a incremental bet XUS. Denise, we've talked about the opportunities um, internationally emerging markets. We've talked about market cap being small caps, really great space. What about sectors? Where are you seeing great opportunities in sectors? Yeah, let's talk about my top three. And I always sort of debate which one I'm going to highlight. Uh, and I, I kind of like them all equally. But I would say consumer discretionary financials and materials, and specifically within materials, I would say metals and mining, are the three opportunities that I see in the market. And I'm going to talk about consumer discretionary because I talked a lot about these contrarian buy signals, right? The worse news gets, the more you can look at history and say, aha, now is the time for opportunity if I have a one-year time horizon, right? It doesn't mean about picking bottoms. It means making money by looking through bottoms. And I see a lot of that in consumer discretionary from a pattern recognition perspective. But what's really unique, especially as you go down the cap spectrum, is the relative price-to-book valuation support. That has not had this level of valuation support on an equal-weighted basis since I would call it the tech rec. And outside of that, I would say never. So from an equal-weighted basket in consumer discretionary, what you find is, generally speaking, investors don't want to own it. It has like 30% odds. But what you find is, at this level of valuation support, your odds are in excess of 70%. So you already have a strong valuation risk-reward, and you have all of these contrarian signals, and you know the stocks work, even though that earnings don't get any better. So the earnings recession for consumer discretionary usually lasts... 12 to 15 months, and the stocks bottom six to nine 
nine months before earnings bottom. So you know you have mm -hmm. to buy the sector when news gets bad. And then I'd say lastly, I do think that inflation is coming down. You know, how precipitously is a question mark, but if there is one pattern to recognize historically, it's that consumer discretionary has the be been the beneficiary of that, specifically the contraction that we've seen in crude oil. So that's one area we actually talked we about agree. last night, and we it's agree that I think that there's opportunity within consumer discretionary right now, despite the fact that it's a pretty poor setup in the sense that real incomes have been negative for 19 months. Right, this is not a backdrop where you go, aha, it's been a great environment, now's the time. So I think you sort of have to dip your toe into the water based on this bad news. So Ramona, I've heard you say in the past that you focus on both the ultimate destination of the fund as well as the quality of the journey. Mm. So I know that you focus on downside protection, downside risk mitigation. You know, why is it the smoothness of the ride so important to you and how do you think it can benefit investors? Yeah, so I'll answer that in two parts. Um, there are two pieces. There's, uh, there's the fund experience and there's the end investor experience. And those, unfortunately, can be different things. Um, and so starting with the fund experience, what, you, what we're aiming for is to continue delivering a good long-term compounded return. Um, and so the way you get there, obviously, is, you know, you're stock picking to try to drive alpha, but the sort of extra explicit mindset that I bring to that is to do that in, so that's your, so the alpha is your end destination. That's what everyone wants. Um, to me, it really matters uh, what the, essentially the journey looks like, the smoothness of the ride. And so that is essentially the volatility that you allow into the return stream, obviously without compromising the alpha too much. So if you put those two pieces together, trying to have a smoother ride as possible, low volatility in your return profile and a good end alpha, that's how you get, that's how you essentially maximize your compounded return in the fund because volatility um, damages compounded return, right? Mathematically. So that's the fund experience where um, the volatility profile really matters and it's linked to the investor experience. The real goal is to try to have um, the investor experience be as close to the fund experience as possible. Like a travesty in this business is where the fund experience is great and the investor because of sort of lack of confidence is not able to stick with the fund and has a much worse experience. And we don't talk about that enough. So if the real goal is to have those two aligned, um, to me, volatility or the smoothness of the return profile is what links those two. The smoother it is, sort of um, my instinct is the higher the confidence the end investor has in how you deliver that alpha. And so um, the higher the odds are of them just sticking with you instead of sort of unwisely getting into and out of the fund. So if they just stick with you, then those two experiences can be really aligned. And again, what links them is um, how volatile that return stream is, at least in my process. And the way that I get there is through a downside protection mindset in the context of being fully invested. So on, on numbers in this strategy, um, the down capture, so how much of a drawdown this strategy will capture is in the 70s, so the mid-70s, and the up capture, how much of an up market the strategy will capture is in the mid-90s in a fully invested context, so not using cash as an allocation tool to try to really you know, jam that downside. And so with that sort of 20-point spread, as driven by a strong downside capture profile, is what gets you that compounded alpha experience that's strong, that an investor in, in my philosophy, can really rely on and stick with such that the two experiences, fund and investor, are aligned. That's the way I think about it. Great. 
Denise, you've touched on this a little bit, but last year was unusual, and I mentioned this earlier when we were talking to Jeff, that both equities and bonds were negative last year, very unusual. So what's your outlook on these asset classes for 2023? Yeah, constructive on both. I mean, it's funny because when you look back, we have data going back to 1930, and I'm actually like in the process of doing a paper on the 60-40 portfolio because we do have great data going back. It's only 75% of the time that equities and bonds are negatively correlated, right? We think it's 100%, uh, but it's actually not not 100%, which we saw last last year, obviously. Um, I think going forward, when you look at the 60-40 portfolio, and I'm more constructive on equities than I am on bonds, but that's right this second. There's actually a lot of signals out there that say that maybe bonds could actually beat equities relative to what we're seeing. And that would sort of be dependent on inflation. But I think that there's two critical drivers. The first is obviously inflation. So when inflation is in the top quartile, what you usually have is, you know, most of the time in history, the 60-40 portfolio underperforms. Once it's out of that top quartile and decelerating, it flips your odds to well below 50-50 to above 80, right? 80% is not a lock. But if you said critical driver number one for this portfolio, now we've got a check that used to be negative that is now in the positive column. The second critical driver is the starting valuation point for equities. Now, again, we have data going back to 1930s. And I know a lot of people tell me, yeah, but I don't want to pay 18 times. You're one of those people. Yeah, you're not going to get seven, I don't think, with interest rates. I don't rates need seven. I need half. like, yeah. you know, 14, 15. <laughs> so the reason I don't think you're going to get there is because when I look at the data going back to the 1930s, what you have is now you're in the bottom half when you're below 20 yeah. times. So that, again, maybe you'll get 14, 15. You're definitely not going to get seven. This is on I don't earnings. think you're going to get seven. This is on earnings. This is trailing earnings. Right. So when you look at that, we were well above in the top half of the, of the percent of the distribution, and now we're in the bottom half of the distribution, and that increases your odds. So I think that the two critical drivers of both stocks and bonds are in a much better place starting this year than they were last year, and I think that should bias your odds of 60-40 portfolio actually being back in 2023. Great. So Ramona, given the potential for recession, are you being defense or offense or defensive or offensive? And I think just if you could add on to that, Denise talked about sectors, but what sectors are you thinking about? Are there any companies that are great ideas that you've been looking at that you have in the portfolio? So knowing my process, uh, the, the sort of way to answer the defensive offensive question starts with valuation and starts with all different ways to measure valuation. I don't like 18 times. Yeah. I think 18 times on a number that's still inflated, <laughs> the number that needs to go yeah. down is not exactly like, you know, 18 times on an already deflated number. So, you know, so if you know my process, that would lead me to be more defensive than offensive. Right. But I hear you. Yeah. And that's why I like talking to you. So I'm with you on discretionary. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we sort of direct. Which I feel like is offensive. Yeah, it's totally yeah. yeah, I don't know. You know, so, so um, I'm with you on staples. Like staples, as much as I use uh, defensive sectors to sort of get portfolio, they're, they're not exciting in any way. Utilities, healthcare, staples, they are unexciting, but they're great portfolio construction tools if you're going after this sort of more uh, global goals, if you will, of like a, a very specific up capture experience, down capture experience, beta experience, you know, risk adjusted alpha experience. These are great tools at the right valuation. So steeples are a tool, but not at a great valuation right now, no matter how you look at it. Um, I'm still, I still own a whole lot of um, healthcare, so large cap pharma and biotech. I can get um, out of those areas, the portfolio construction qualities I'm looking for without taking too much valuation risk. I'm sort of taking some amount of pipeline or long-term visibility risk, but the valuations are still okay. 
Um, I still have a fair bit of energy. I can still find decent free cash flow yields. It's not as great as two years ago or so inside of energy. So that's my kind of rundown. Denise, do you think markets are in for another drawdown in 2023? Don't know. That's a timing question. But I'll give you one historical example of, you know, essentially what we have is a Federal Reserve coming great guns for inflation. We saw this before with Volcker in 1979. And it's interesting when you think about it. So the Fed came great guns for inflation. They said we're going to raise rates uh, very dramatically. And they did. Uh, they raised rates, I think, you know, over 200 basis points. ISM contracted, you know, measure of manufa manufacturing diffusion to, to the 30s. Earnings contracted. Many things contracted. Stocks went up by an average of at the, from that point, 25%, right? So that's a very palpable historical description of what the market can do from a discounting mechanism. From a timing perspective, what happened was we had stop-start inflation. We actually entered another recession. So we had another drawdown from the low of the 1982 recession, which was 18 months, versus the 1980 recession, which was much shorter. You actually made money from the time that Paul Volcker said, I'm coming great guns for inflation. This is going to be a problem. Into that next low of 1982, you were still up by 15%. That's a long-winded way of saying, look, I don't know where the trough is, but even in times like that, sometimes there is more opportunity, even despite the fact that you might have another drawdown. Great. So final thoughts, Ramona. Why should people be interested in our dividend lineup and in particular global dividends? Thanks for ending on that note. So I think you know, like everyone else, I want alpha. What is not like everyone else is I care a lot about the risk that I think of risk as a cost that I pay for that alpha. And so if that message resonates with you, and that's the whole destination and smoothness of the ride, then the combination of that smoothness and that like sort of maximizing alpha is what gets you a great compounded return, which is what you, what you actually um, realize over time. So in my mind, if you're going after great long-term compounded return, you have to think about the risk profile. And then I add some income to that, which, which um, dampens that volatility even more. So you're getting a, you know, what I'm trying to do is just give you excellent um, risk-adjusted return. Great. Ramona, Denise, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.